everyone, and welcome to That Wellness Podcast with Natalie Deering. I'm sitting here today with Dr. Nancy Morgan. Nancy is a level three trained certified IFS therapist, an approved IFS clinical consultant, and an assistant trainer with the IFS Institute. She is a California licensed clinical psychologist and a licensed professional counselor in Oregon and Colorado. Nancy leads introduction to IFS workshops for psychedelic researchers, therapists, and guides, and introduction to psychedelics workshops for IFS-trained therapists and practitioners. In 2023, Nancy received her certification as a psilocybin-assisted facilitator through InnerTrek, Oregon's first licensed psilocybin-assisted facilitator training program. She also wrote a chapter in the book, Altogether Us, called IFS and Psychedelic Integration, Enhancing Self-Depart Healing Through the Power of Sacred Plant Medicines with Nancy Morgan. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Nancy, to the podcast. Thank you, Natalie. It's really good to be here. I'm so grateful that we're able to connect right now in this moment. Having read your chapter and All Together Us, it just really spoke to me. We were chatting before we hit record and uh, as the listeners know, I, I I love IFS, and I've really felt drawn to and called towards psychedelics as well over the past, I feel like, year especially. Mm-hmm. So seeing your chapter and reading your chapter in, in that book, I was just yeah feeling really pulled towards connecting with you and, like I said before, picking your brain mm-hmm. on this information. Because mm-hmm. as you wrote about in the chapter, there's a lot of research being done now. There's a lot of work being done with this now. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff coming forward. Mm-hmm. And how psychedelics in general are fantastic and the use of with mental health, you know, healing and all of that, but also this combination with IFS. Yes, absolutely. And so I'd love to start the conversation with how did you come to know about IFS? I remember very well, it was springtime of 2015, and I was then directing a graduate training program out of Northern California's largest agency dedicated to breaking the cycle of homelessness. So spanning two counties in Silicon Valley, which is a very fast-paced and and primarily affluent area, I was... Um, I was getting to create and direct this graduate training program for graduate psychology students. At that time, it was all PhD students. It then expanded to include master's level as well from five Bay Area university training programs. And then the work they did, it was a 46-week practicum program while they were still in graduate school, but they would work at specific sites So these sites were apartment complexes that were completely dedicated to breaking the cycle of homelessness. So it would be first-time homeless families a lot, first-time homeless individuals. And so that program uh, I had been able to start in in August of um, 2015. So actually, I, I take it back, Natalie, it was 2016 that I stumbled into IFS because I decided... I was also going to open one day a week um, private practice, which I did in a place called Mountain View, California. And 
uh, as I was getting ready to start that, I I joined a group of other people who were wanting to start limited private practices and met with some consultants. And I remember them saying, well, what's your niche? And I was thinking, you know, I'm a 20 plus year Buddhist practitioner, of Vajrayana Buddhism, deep study of the mind. So I yeah. thought it's probably going to be what my niche is, you know, bringing in mindfulness. And then uh, on this big call, it was we didn't have Zoom yet. Mm -hmm. uh, we had everybody on this phone conference. A woman said, oh, my niche is IFS. It's all I do. And I remember at that moment thinking, how could somebody only do something I've never heard of? Ah. I've been to school for a long time. So I early days, you know, Googled it and immediately went to what was then the Center for Self-Leadership, now the IFS Institute and read about this, this guy, Dick Schwartz, and what he was doing, and just felt chills immediately. Mm. And then realized that in January of 20, goodness, yeah, I'm forgetting that maybe it was 2017. He was going to be at Esalen. And I signed up. And then I got to meet Dick. And so that really began my process of getting to work with IFS. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like I've interviewed now a number of people who they heard he was going to be at Esalen and they were able to hear him and meet him then. Yes. And that was right before I, IFS was just really taking off because, you know, it ended up being identified as a an evidence-based right. um, therapy. But at that time, I didn't realize how lucky I was to have applied and gotten in. Esalen will sell out in minutes like most everything does. Oh yeah. But that was it. And then there was my week there with Dick and my life before then. And then my life since. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it really like that, that moment when you even heard that woman say that on the call, right. Yeah. That that like sparked maybe, would you say like parts of you were like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's Absolutely. interesting. And then even just Googling it and yep. feeling what you described as kind of like that. Oh, yeah, this is something I was, I was utterly transformed that week, um, which now I reflect back uh, the dates have all sort of merged together for me. That was January of 2016 when I met Dick. And so then because I had started the training program just like August of 2015, I I went to Dick and, and I said, I'm just learning this. This is going to be huge. I want to introduce it to my graduate students. What would you feel about me doing that? And he said, well, you know, you, you're learning with them and it's an introduction. So yeah, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. And it felt so good to get that endorsement. So I learned with the students as we went along mm. and got you know, got the books and watched videos and just did everything I could to, and basically just began immersing myself in IFS and the program became the first graduate training program for psychology, PhD students, um, specifically dedicated to introducing IFS so that they could begin learning about their parts mm. and really, uh, be the best possible therapist they could be for the clients they were working with. That's wonderful. It, it sounds like it was just kind of meant to be yeah, in that time frame, Right. And how it all happened. Right. 
That's really neat. It was wonderful. And so that was in, yeah, 2016, you said. And so, but you had said earlier before that you had already been in practice for how long? Oh, yeah. No, I'd I'd worked up in Oregon uh, at what's called a secure residential treatment facility. It's a 24-7 facility where I was doing my own brand of unlearning what I had learned in graduate school because the clients I worked with were letting me know that wasn't helpful for them. Mm And so I was really learning how to listen and just try to find my own seat in relationship with them without relying on on the approaches that I've been taught. And I'd also had a really beautiful mentor who's still my mentor. He's 92. Um, And he always would just really invite me to notice what was happening inside me, even though he didn't know IFS, Mm. what was happening inside me with the client. And to do the opposite, because everybody else was doing what they were feeling reactions around. So if I was feeling the reaction to pull away, he'd say, oh, then go toward them. And Ah. so uh, that started laying my foundation. And that's what I was doing before then. Very interesting. And did you find it difficult, like once you started learning about IFS, to kind of integrate that and kind of move towards that way of doing it? Like, was there parts of you that had any push pull at all, like from what you learned previously? Right. You know, if I'd imagine there maybe was, but my response is I wanted to breathe, eat, sleep, only do IFS because it resonated so truthfully and so completely for me that I wanted to dedicate myself to removing any obstacles that came between me and this incredible model, this incredible wisdom teaching. Yeah, I get it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I get it. And so then how does psychedelics, how has that played a part in your life? Was that something that was before IFS? So in the chapter, I write a little bit about my exposure to psychedelics and that came primarily in the form of the uh, psilocybin cubensis, the mushroom. Um, I'd had experience with LSD, uh, a little bit of peyote. And I, you know, this was back in my late teens and my early 20s. And then I separated from it. Well, and it was also, it sort of heralded the era of cocaine, which not a psychedelic, but, Mm -hmm. and not something for a starving student to ever really get too involved in because I didn't have the money, but I knew people who did. And I just felt like something was shifting and moving away from the expanded states that I'd known with psychedelics into kind of a different era. And so I felt like I was done with it and was just going to dedicate myself to academics and going to school and always missed though, the certain revelations that had come to me with such pristine clarity at points with different psychedelics. And I didn't know how to get connected back to them. Mm. And then in, this is one of those just remarkable experiences where I was visiting my little sister and she lives in a place called McCoy, Colorado. I don't even know if there are 200 people there. There's not a paved road, dirt Mm. road. Um, that she lives on. And I was visiting her and her neighbor, uh, her neighbor's daughter was visiting from Chicago. 
And this neighbor's daughter was involved in psychedelics in the early training that was offered in psychedelics. And so I happened to meet this daughter. So there I am in remote Colorado, meeting this daughter and learning about a program that was literally an hour away from where I lived in the Bay Area. And I hadn't even known about it. Yeah. And that's the California Institute of Integral Studies. And it was their brand new certificate in psychedelic assisted therapies and research. And with phenomenal, the professors, I mean, we had Michael and Annie Mithofer, we had all the people from NYU, UCLA, we had the notables from Johns Hopkins. They were our professors. So I applied and got in. And from that point on, I could only view and learn about and be reconnected to psychedelics, mostly through the research that was happening but I kept wondering where is IFS. And then when Annie and Michael Mithofer spoke, I recognized and I, as I got to know them, they acknowledged that they were both trained by Dick. And I thought, there it is. Yeah. That's but their work really wasn't about the therapeutic modalities efficacy. It was about the safety and the efficacy of MDMA, methylene dioxymethamphetamine which they had been working with Rick Doblin through MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, to bring to the public because it had been scheduled as a felony, if anybody. Um, And so I felt at CIIS, they said, you know, we're going to be training you for a job that doesn't exist yet, but all on board who are interested. Yeah. I was in their fourth training cohort. Okay. And so was that in, that was between 2016 and 2019? No, it was 2019. I applied in 2018 and did the 2019 cohort. Okay. And I I really appreciated you sharing at the beginning of the chapter that it sounds like that was the first experience that you had with a psilocybin Mm -hmm. mushroom and it was 1975 and you took it on your way going to a concert, right? Right at Red Rocks. That's at right. Red Rocks. Yeah. And the way you described it, I, it really, what I took from that description was just the connection that I'm assuming that maybe you felt in that moment, like to the earth. Yes. Because you described just staring at the beautiful mountains and the rocks yes. and trees, the, the, the trees and the ants. Yeah. Everything yeah. came alive for me. And I'd already grown up at 7,800 feet in a really small mm. town. Green Mountain Falls, Colorado. And it was really beautiful. And it was small. Um, and nature was my my guardian. But this connected me on a deeper level than I'd ever been connected growing up and playing in, in the woods. This felt like it was touching something deep in my soul. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful yeah, that you described that at the beginning of the chapter to kind of give people a little taste of how that was for you and that connection with nature. And I'm curious, could you share a little bit now about what does some of the research show in regards to uh, the benefits of psychedelics? You know, there's so much now, there's so much research, it's just gone through the roof. But one of the things in my training that was so important was showing the research that had been done in the 50s and 60s that showed the incredible promise of psychedelics. And until that was shut down and during the Nixon era and maintained that lid stayed on it, uh, 
it wasn't really until Hopkins and then Charlie Grove down at UCLA were able to get approval to work with psychedelics again. And then ultimately folks at NYU and again, it just started one university after the other, started getting the rights to start working. Everything that they're finding was just confirming what was already established early on that had been shelved. So, and now with so much information, I, I would, you know, I would say there's no end. And for anybody interested in wanting to know specifically MDMA, go to MAPS, get mm-hmm. subscribed to their newsletter, read Sacred Knowledge. Uh, it's a beautiful book by one of my professors out of um, out of Hopkins, um, William Richards, Bill Richards. And uh, it tells the history of psychedelics, but then it also contemporizes and talks about the current teachings. And, you know, Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which is just a beautiful guide as well. They're, the notables who have put this work together are now the elders in the field. And then there are so many brilliant young people who are doing incredible research. The name Robin Carhart Harris is really familiar to people. He's now at University of California, San Francisco. And his research is showing the incredible promise. Mostly what we see in a nutshell is those parts of our brain that filter out what is the brain perceives is not needed for our daily functioning are relaxed. Mm-hmm. This is so true with MDMA. I remember Dick saying to me once, it's like being bathed in self. Mm. The parts relax, the fear center down regulates, oxytocin is released, serotonin, dopamine are released. And it's the perfect condition to sit with parts and do the deep bonding work inside and then recognize how this can apply outside. Yeah. Technically, I I know that Rick Doblin has included MDMA as a psychedelic, but when I think of the psychedelics with which I work, which, you know, primarily the mushroom in particular, I also work with ayahuasca and part of the ayahuasca church here in Ashland, but these and Uh, the Native American church's use of peyote, which is really sacred. And so I'm very happy for those of us who are not a part of the Native American church to use the synthetic mescaline when we will have an opportunity to do that legally. Mm -hmm. But right now, what we find is they share in common an element of the dimethyltryptamine DMT molecule. They can take us into these places that will show us what is needing attention in our system. So with ideal IFS-informed preparation, we can really create a wider aperture to go into these experiences and then look at what it is that's there for us to know so that we can then integrate that in the subsequent, to the, you know, the sessions that follow the journey. Yes, right. IFS-informed integration as well. Yeah. And... I, I heard something said one time, I forget what, who said this now, but it, it was something like psychedelics are like a flashlight and they'll shine a light on maybe what is needed to be seen, right. but they're not, it's not going to do the healing itself. Right. It's just shining a light on it. And then that's where it's on the individual right. to then engage in what is needed afterwards. Would you agree with that? I, I would totally agree with that. 
because I know in doing a lot of preparation work with people over these last now five years that and integration work that when if we don't in my experience if we don't do ifs informed preparation then we f- we forget we don't know to ask questions such as okay a part of you is excited about this journey you're going to to mm-hmm. get to go what are the hopes if this part gets what it's wanting what does it want to be different and then you can start fleshing out okay and what if it doesn't what do you notice all right and do you have any parts that don't have um, the same sort of approach that maybe even have fears or some concerns about this? So you're hearing from them because we follow the IFS protocol, which is we don't go anywhere without parts permission. Exactly. So when you, and so with one person, I worked with two years until we got his parts permission, two years. Yeah. The woman recently I worked with, it's been about a year and a half. So this is so this is really deep preparation. But then what they had was just a clear opening to then have that light shine on what was there to see because the filters aren't there. But also we've done the work, which with the parts might have been aka the filters, right? Uh, that were locked at the you know locked with their arms across their chest, saying we are not going here. Instead, mm-hmm. what we got is permission to go there. Exactly. Yeah, I, I I have a lot of questions to connect with the preparation. I want to ask you, though, first, mm-hmm. when did you begin integrating IFS with psychedelic experiences? I began doing it immediately myself when I was involved in ayahuasca ceremonies. There's one in particular self self transformation works, which are three days. And I would have clients who I couldn't sit with yet in the mushroom space, but they could become a member of the ayahuasca church here. And this church is very special here in Ashland because it, in conjunction with the uh, ayahuasca church in Portland fought for 10 years to win the right through the U S Supreme court, for the ayahuasca church known as the Santo Daimi church, which Mm. is the holy give me. That's what we're asking for the medicine. Give me what it is that I'm needing to Mm. heal and to know. And that church is a, a church based out of Brazil and it's all around the world now. But for people who were interested, this is such a well led and such a beautiful church and they won the right literally 10 years to the day from when the federal government raided them, seized their bank account, took the ayahuasca Mm. to the day when the ayahuasca arrived at the airport from the community in Brazil who bears it. And the federal government was there this time to ensure its safe passage to get back to the church. That's great. (laughs) So I would have clients I do prep for months with them. And then they would come and do the three-day self-transformation work. Okay. I would integrate it. Yeah. And what did you see? Well, first, all the best integration in the world starts with preparation. And the second, so I would get permission from the parts. And then afterward, often people would come in with particular intentions and maybe three to five questions that they wanted answered. 
and parts of them wanted answered. Yeah. Then what we would see over and over again was at the end when they realized all of those were answered in just this one way. Mm. This is what I got in the medicine space. Wow. So then I, you know, the other thing to say is that these training centers that are now licensed, especially in Oregon, we are the Portugal of the United States. We mm-hmm. started being the first state that uh, decriminalized all all um, drugs, quote unquote. Yeah. And so, and now, you know, other states are moving right into it. Colorado already has recently in a very cut back version though, Senator Scott Weiner from uh, San Mateo County, California, was able to just get through California's equivalent that'll go into effect beginning of next year. Each state is finding its own relationship with what feels acceptable to them uh, in terms of what is legal and what is decriminalized. Those are two different classifications. Okay. But what I realized too is the wisdom of the elders that have had to be underground for 30, 40 years up to was really where I was going to tap into my greatest understanding about preparation integration. And so mm-hmm. I IFS to those people and uh, introducing IFS to let them know, has this ever happened to you when you're working with somebody and they've now started talking about a part of them and they're like all the time. Yeah. Context now. And so I would provide that for them. And what they would do is often send me clients who were, they were going to journey with and sit for and I would do the prep and the integration. So I'd been doing That's that great. for the last four, four or five years. That's wonderful. Yeah. And would you say, what would lead someone maybe to not, like, I know you said a little bit ago that you were working with someone who, I think you said it took two years yes. for their system to give yes. permission and to give consent, right? Absolutely. And so that was one of the questions that I had was, you know, what would lead someone to not doing a guided experience with psychedelics, even if maybe parts of them were interested? Mm -hmm. And would you say maybe an answer to that is, well, if parts of them aren't interested, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then maybe it's not, it's not time. That's right. You know, um, right now, ketamine is completely legal. And it is considered by the Center for Disease Control one of the safest medications that can be offered. It's used for all sorts of things. At high enough dosage, it's a psychedelic. Mm-hmm. So I began working with people like Bob Grant at Healing Realms. Oh, yeah. And with another prescriber who is out of Woodside, California, Helios Wellness, um, Dr. Jennifer Dorr. And so Clients who wanted to have a very structured but short-term psychedelic experience because the arc of the psychedelic experience is short with ketamine could go to these sites. And then I did it because I was proximate to Dr. Jennifer Doerr's site in Woodside, California. And I would prepare clients. And then if they had excitement, but some fears or concerns, then we would look at exploring the question and what if it were at a site where the doctor is there and would be present and I could sit there and just be there to hold space and and hold mm-hmm. self space and it it was short term so you know in and out we're looking at like two hours yeah. how would that be and that's where the parts would go oh okay mm-hmm. so and especially for the one gentleman I referred to 
to 70. When he was 18, he had a profound and beautiful experience with LSD out in nature. And then it shifted. And all of a sudden he got into a thinking place and he was raised in a very religious environment. He was in the South and a religious household. And all of a sudden it went from this beautiful feeling of connectedness with all things to you have just now messed with the supreme order of everything. Mm. And you've done that. You need to kill yourself. Oh, wow. And so he's in an LSD space getting this kind of messaging. And fortunately for him, he did attempt because he had a little knife with him. He attempted to stab himself and he hit his rib. Mm. And then he attempted again, but he said it was like an angelic voice said, oh, honey, no, 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 don't do that. Let's get you to the hospital. Let's get you. you Mm, Yeah. So, but all these years later, he had wanted to connect back to that beautiful, beautiful experience. And even that angelic voice, but so deep in him was the fear. But what if that other voice came back? Right. And, you know, we had to honor that, honor that. And it was ketamine that gave him the opportunity, this, this part with all these concerns, to say this container will be held safely by these people. You will not be alone. Look at all of what's here to hold you. And that's what he ended up doing. That's beautiful. I I was able to take Dr. Grant's ketamine assisted psychotherapy program. And I've interviewed him on the podcast. He's, he's wonderful. And I really appreciate what he's offering. And yeah, you know, and I, in your chapter, you also write about the concerns also with ketamine right now as well in terms of some of the ketamine clinics that maybe are Mm -hmm. kind of doing that kind of in and out model in regards to profit as opposed to actual healing. And I say that uh, actual healing, but, you know, kind of with that profit mentality as opposed to a right preparation integration type model. And yeah, you know, that is a concern. It's a current concern that that I have that parts of me definitely have. And, you know, I've been trying to build connections with people around me in the state of Kentucky and into, you know, Ohio that have ketamine clinics to kind of have this, this connection with them and by, you know, with us, with each other. And so, you know, I've been fortunate then to get, you know, referrals of people that are going to be engaging in the ketamine through the clinics and mm-hmm. then they can do IFS parts work with me. Right. Perfect, Natalie. And that has been a real joy to be able to to be with people yeah. and and helping them get to know the parts of them that were being shown. And if they were to just leave there, then it's kind of like, I mean, what do well, you do with it? <laughs> right. And and maybe some of these people, yes, I, I have talked to folks who are very motivated by the income because they are anesthesiologists who could set up a ketamine clinic. They know the medicine, they know dosages. Right. They don't know, they don't know IFS, they don't know preparation, and they don't hold the potential for group healing, mm-hmm. which I think is just a really beautiful potential, which we see in ayahuasca circles. And then 
also in um, in Ashland, just four blocks from my house. We've got a beautiful site opening up for individual work where I can sit with clients and group work. I see what happens in ayahuasca circles as profoundly healing because of that collective. With the ketamine infusion clinics, it's you're set up so often you're just set up and you're isolated. You come in, you're getting your drip, you're and then you're done. Mm-hmm. And so not only is there not the preparation integration, but there's not the community, even somebody there to sit with you in that space, somebody to check on the drip, but that's it. So. Exactly. And again, I think I would believe that there is, of course, you know, positive intention mm-hmm. in helping people to experience the benefits of ketamine. And I think there's just so much more that we're learning about, like you said, the importance of connection, community, yeah, the preparation and the integration, which is what you really focus on. I feel like a lot in the chapter that you wrote. And I also wanted to mention this because I thought this was interesting. In your chapter, you talk about a bad trip as maybe being connected to, uh, you know, polarized parts, Mm -hmm. which I wrote that down because I was like, oh, that's interesting. And that makes a lot of sense from an IFS perspective, right? That for someone who experienced a quote unquote, bad trip experience that it could have been that yeah. parts of them right. were on board and parts of them were not on board. Right. That's right. Because who's having the bad trip? Who Who is it? And so often what was identified as a bad trip was a complete sort of fragmenting of any sense of reality and who I am. And it's dark and it's terrifying. I mean, it's terrifying. And my feeling is, we we never know what's going to happen in the medicine. So even with really careful prep, really thorough prep, what if we're sitting in a space with someone and they go into a very terrified place mm-hmm. and look at you and say, I don't even know who you are anymore. You're trying to hurt me. Give me my phone and my keys back. I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. You really, this is where our work is essential to one, maintain the container and to have that container include in the prep an agreement, a series of agreements that are made before a journey begins, which include the agreement to not harm yourself or well, one, to not leave the space, not until the journey is completely over. You stay in the space. You don't harm yourself, the guide or any of the property. Mm-hmm. I've known a couple instances where really experienced guides, really experienced guides would have somebody who went into this place of abject terror and, and said they needed to leave right now. They absolutely had to leave. And it would be calling upon that agreement. And here's where we ask which part signed mm-hmm. the agreement. It's a manager. They're yeah. a firefighter. You're never going to sign an agreement, right? but the manager. And if that person is acting out of fear, in essence, we call back in the manager. All right. That part of you that signed, remember, signed the agreement. Yeah. We're honoring that. I'm honoring that. Do you remember that? And in these cases, yes, it's like, oh, that's right. Mm. And so it's self-correcting. It can still be whitewater for the guide for hours, but you're holding the agreement that you're going to hold the client's safety. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. 
because I had I would I had curiosity about yeah what would that look like and how would that be handled but that's interesting that it makes sense that you would call upon okay so let's let's acknowledge the the manager part the part that signed that right that agreed to that that's right because we're going to honor that but then would there also be like holding space for maybe the parts that are present that are scared that maybe then come forward and it's like well I didn't agree to it (laughs) Uh-huh. I I love that you asked that because that's one of the things I really learned from Bill Richards at, at Hopkins was we also say in and through, remember, this is where the medicine is doing what it does. And it's got something you're going to be shown things. So we're going in and through open and allow. And oftentimes this is also where the music can be really helpful. Mm. Um, If you're inclined to want to use tuning forks, you know, in C heart chakra, just to put that near a person's ear, um, sometimes opening up. I like to use sound bowls. So the throat chakra, uh, heart chakra root, you know, so much of our, of our fear can be held right there in our pelvis I'm not safe. I'm scared. Just doing some nice work with, with the crystal bowl where it's just a gentle tapping. You're bringing in that frequency of calm mm. that says we are okay here together. This there's something to learn, go toward it and mm. see what's there for you. Yeah. Go in and through in and instead through. of, instead of avoiding. Right. That's what becomes in my experience, what the bad trip where it's, it's a sense of, or, and it might not even be conscious avoiding. It might not be a polarization. It might just be simply, you know, people talk about ego dissolution or ego death that always, that never sits right with me. Right. Because the ego is, is often just several very hardworking managers, right? They don't die and we don't want them to dissolve, but what if they're no longer accessible because they have been so much what the person's identification was with in their exactly. life. So, but this is all what we cover in the prep also. Right. See, it's so interesting to me because when I listen to other podcasts and they're talking about ego deaths and all of this, I'm like shaking my head <laughs> right? because I'm like, oh, if people could understand ourselves in this That's way right. as multiple and that, yeah, what we call the ego is like, I love what you just said, that it's these manager parts that are are trying to help us live our lives. They're being proactive and, right. and they're doing it for a reason That's for right. that individual. And if we can come to get to know them and be in relationship with them, right? It, it, it's, it's like, they don't, they don't need to die and they're not going to die. They're not going to die. <laughs> yeah. They're and not going to die. to die. Right. And the other thing too, is just like with a client who's dissociating in, in a session with us, I feel like this is where I really bring in an, a, as much self as I can, the energy of that, that self energy that can be in the room so they can, so they can co-regulate to me. Mm. That's why training guides is so important and learning about what happens in them, because if all of a sudden their parts are activated, who can they co-regulate? Who can the client co-regulate with? Right. So that also will feed into the quote unquote bad trip. So what if we can be there and hold space and they can really lean into and feel 
my self energy there with them as the mm-hmm. safe container. Yeah. It's beautiful. IFS, beginning, middle and end. Exactly. And so with preparation sessions, utilizing IFS in the chapter, I, I'm really grateful that you included a preparation sheet mm-hmm. in the chapter for people to reference. Thank you right. so much. You're welcome. And in that preparation, you talk about checking in on parts intentions, getting parts consent. And then you also mentioned the ACE assessment. Mm-hmm. And so we, we tar- already talked a little bit about intention uh, and, and also acknowledging the parts that, and I'm assuming this gets into parts consent, asking, are there any parts of you that have any fears, any concerns? Because ultimately, would you say there's some parts that are like on board mm-hmm. that are like, yes, let's do this. I have this intention. Right. And then there's maybe other parts in the background or maybe front and center for some people that are like, no, right. <laughs> here are the fears that I have. Here are the concerns that I have. And, and it could be easy. I could see for, if you're not addressing those parts to just get an alignment with maybe the parts that are like all on board, let's do this. And then you're like, all right, great. Oh, you have some concern. Yeah. Okay. You'll be fine. <laughs> Let's, uh-uh. Right, but that's not good. Uh-uh. That's that's risky business. Maybe it'll go well. Maybe it won't. Yeah. I, because I ask when I'm working with guides, what part of you wants to journey this client? Mm. Do you have any parts that have concerns or fears around journeying this client? I want them to do their own inner work too. Yeah, the client's famous and I want to be that first person who ever... Mm-mm, mm-mm. we really need to have self-held space because there's a difference between self-led and parts-led guiding. Yes. So that we want clarification around. There was one other, there was one other thing that I wanted to come back to too around that. The ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences um, study, so incredibly valuable because by having somebody do their ACE score, there's a big difference between somebody who had three adverse childhood experiences before they were 18 and seven. Right. I'm going to just say, and, and I've only worked with two people, never with medicines who had a 10 because so many people with tens don't live. They haven't Mm. made it. And you know, through the ACEs that so much of what we see tied to inflammatory illness and Mm -hmm. responses is so much to do with what's being held in the body. So that's where I would say lots, lots of extra prep time. Mm-hmm. Working with somebody who's a seven on the aces, she would like to do mushroom. You should like to have me sit for her here in Oregon, wants to come and be sat for. We aren't even close yet. Yeah. I've been working with her for five years. There are so many things kept locked away and quiet. But here's the other thing, which is important to mention, external constraints. What we can't have secrets for somebody going into the medicine space. Mm. Are there any parts that don't want to share with um, significant other, husband, wife, partner, with family members? We have to really explore that too. We have to know that the container they're going back into is safe so that they aren't going to be preyed upon yeah. in their open and expanded state. Oh yeah. That makes so much sense. It really does. 
And I, I appreciate you bringing up the importance of turning inwards as a guide first and making mm-hmm. sure that they're in connection with any of their parts that have any agendas or intentions of certain kinds. And yeah. and with the ACE, there might be some listeners who don't know what that is. Would you care to give a brief explanation of right. what the right. ACE is? Yeah, it started down in San Diego, um, a man named Vincent Felitti, um, and he was part of a dramatic weight loss clinic because Kaiser, he's connected to Kaiser. And what they saw was for a lot of their clients who were obese, smoked, drank, um, sedentary, Kaiser was really having to spend a lot of money to try to help maintain these people's wellness. And so one of the things he thought is, well, we'll do a, a weight loss clinic and help people get into a manageable weight. And that will by virtue of the correlation between reduced weight and less medications they'd need for the medication for the medications to have efficacy. And maybe we can do smoking cessation and some exercise, some meditation. So he, uh, Dr. Felitti shared that there's a woman who went through the program and I think she'd lost like 80 or hundred pounds, but he saw her only a matter of months later and she gained it back. And he didn't think that was possible. And he saw her crossing the campus and went up to her and uh, said, yeah, she had to go back and go into the weight loss program again because she gained it back. When he got curious and talked to her and listened, what he'd realized is they didn't include in their questionnaire any history of child sexual abuse. Mm. She had so much. And the weight had been such a protection. And when the weight was dropped, she started to feel exposed again. Right. And so it created a polarization inside. Uh, and so and for those of us who, you know, look at the world with this IFS lens. So what he did was came up with this 10 question scale and then did the, you know, did the Kaiser client, average Kaiser San Diego client uh, patients. And then took those numbers to a man named Robert Anda at the Center for Disease Control to crunch them. And Bob Anda, in this beautiful video segment I saw with him once, just he said he got the data results and he said, I just wept. He said, I realized this is the largest public health issue we have and we can actually cure it. We need to stop what is happening to children between the ages of birth and 18. Mm. And if we do, if we can correct this, we will reduce the prison population by 60%. We will reduce homeless by 60% and people Mm. will health and vitality in a way they haven't known. So he said he was so excited when they published this, nothing. He waited for years. And then finally it started to spread and schools started to adopt it. And I worked very hard to try to get places like our agency Life Moves on the peninsula to do an ACE study in the very, I mean, to do an ACE questionnaire for mm-hmm. our kids so we could really know what are we looking at here? Right. It might, I might've been before Iraq. We're looking at, you know, what's happened, you know, since they returned, but what happened in their life before they even went. Right. So um, ACE is just really valuable and now it's huge and it's all over and you can go online and you can get a lot of good information mm-hmm. um, about it. There's even a really beautiful three minute YouTube video that'll just give you a great s- summarization of the study from 
Bob Anda and Vincent Politi and certain others. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that history of it. I, I provide it with my paperwork for each person that comes my way and I find it to be just helpful as a, as yeah. another way to just kind of have a little snapshot of yeah. what is connected with this person's history. And I've taken it and it's, yeah. it's just good to know. It it's, is good. It's good to know. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah. then in regards to the integration in the chapter, you also provide an IFS informed integration sheet for that. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. It's extremely helpful. And there you provide questions uh, to invite clients to consider as they integrate their psychedelic experience. Do mm-hmm. you care to go in a little bit more about integration? Yeah, it's much easier to be specific about preparation because integration is where we're really following what is the person's experience. They will often have so many realizations that what we're doing then is just giving the person a chance to share and what else and what else and um, did, did parts get what they were hoping for and where are they now um, and how are they feeling? And do any want to do this again? Why or why not? And how is it at home for you? How is this for you to experience? Uh, is there anybody you're sharing this with in your community of friends and family? And it's so unique for each person. But what I've found is people need sessions to just share all of what was revealed. Yeah. And uh, And if I'm sitting with somebody, I take notes the whole time. I have them give me their journal. I will write in their journal and I'll ask them to bring their journal back and to, and to really read what I've written and what I've captured. They'll often have forgotten things because you forget over time. It's really right. the day after, maybe the week, but two, three weeks later, it starts to get diffuse. Mm-hmm. So that's why I write specifically in their words, what they say during the journey and that way they bring it back and it stimulates their memory again. And the parts come back on. Yeah, that's beautiful. And would you recommend when, like, should the integration process start to happen? Yeah, I believe integration actually starts the end of the journey day with the person just sharing how they're feeling. Now, the medicine is still in their body working and it will be for a couple of days after. But at the end of that day, just there's, it's processing. I wouldn't say it's integration the way I look at integration. Give them a chance to process just what they're noticing, feeling, begin to just speak it out, out loud. Mm-hmm. I prefer to have the very first integration session the next day. Well, that's really fresh. And then a week later. And ideally, every week after. So this is the challenge because with guides, They typically will do two preparation and two integration, and then they'll sit with somebody um, because their work is to be sitters. Um, A lot of them aren't therapists, you know, and a a lot don't know IFS. So this is kind of the underground protocol. Okay. The research protocols based on what the FDA requires is there's a certain number of preparation and integration sessions, but it's capped because that's all about research. This is where I I really believe that what this is calling for is group integration. So if you're going to sit with somebody 
and then integrate with them the two sessions and then be able to come and talk to a th IFS therapist or practitioner or an open-minded therapist or practitioner uh, who's willing to just hold space for you while you talk about your parts experience. Then there is um, the potential to just look at how much does that person cost and how many sessions can you get? I, I find because healing happens in a collective space so beautifully, I, in my perfect world, I would have integration circles for people who had their journey, their number of integration sessions with their, their journey or their guide, and then would want to participate in a group share like via Zoom. Okay. Um, do that like once a month. In yeah. my world, that's what we would offer because then you could do it for more people and it could be more affordable right. than individual therapy sessions. And do you feel like having that in a group and a group energy and atmosphere, would it be as beneficial or maybe even more beneficial than if it, they did it one-on-one? -on -one? I think initially one-on-one -on -one is really good to just hear and have mm -hmm. that space held. But then when you sit in a collective and you hear other people's stories, this really I see in ayahuasca circles in particular, and you hear other people's stories at the end of each day in the self-transformation works I spoke about earlier, it's so touching and so moving and you realize our commonalities and how healing it is to hear other people's stories too. Mm -hmm. Then we'll all be connected um, because we come from all over the United States for these self-transformation works. We'll be connected via Zoom probably in about three weeks and we'll get to touch base with each other one more time. Yeah, and that's connection. Connection. Yeah, right. connection. And that in itself can be healing. Yes. For a I, lot of people. It is, yeah. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. Anything else you want to add about integration? We are all learning and it will never end. So learn from listening and paying attention and staying open and working with our own parts. Mm. I think that's the greatest gift we can give the world, give ourselves, our own systems, but give each other in the world. Yeah, I agree. And that was so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And Anything you want to share with the listeners about services that you are currently offering? Yeah. Usually after I'll do, I do podcasts or trainings, I'll have a lot more hits on my website and I do have a place where people can put their name on my subscription. You know, I mean, they can just put their name there. So if I'm going to be doing any trainings, I can, um, they'll be the first to know. Right. Here's the thing. I, um, I had lost my little brother to stage four cancer that was diagnosed mm. uh, end of October, beginning of November last year. And he, he passed middle of December. Five weeks later, I was diagnosed stage three, the exact same cancer. Oh, wow. And I worked with the medicines and uh, particularly the mushroom. And I got very clear guidance and chose not to do radiation and chemo, which would immediately have cost me possibly my ability to speak, but certainly my ability to swallow, my mm. ability to taste. It was just a clear no. And what I did was I went to Mexico through the help of a friend who created a GoFundMe page. 
And I went to Hope for Cancer and I was able to get 11 non-toxic treatments a day, six days a week for three weeks back in April. Oh my gosh. And I then went back for my 90 day follow-up and then ultimately met with a surgeon up at Oregon Health Sciences University who based on follow-up assessments said, Nancy, I think your immune system that you've been building has cleared the cancer. The only place it's left was in that lymph node, which is where it's holding it. And I can remove that. Oh my gosh. So he removed it on August 11th. And now the subsequent tests revealed that seven months to the day, there's no evidence of cancer in my body anymore. Oh my gosh, Nancy, that's, that's amazing. It's, it is amazing. And I, I, I was so scared and was being pushed down these channels of what to do, when to do it, how to do it. We have to do it right now. And if I hadn't been able to use the allies of the, of the medicines, I don't know that I'd be speaking to you today. And so I really believe in this. And I've since begun um, recording my conversations with cancer because I was able to connect with the cancer. Wow. Energy in my body. And I was a hope merchant. And I said, it was letting me know it was terrified because all anyone wanted to do was find it and kill it. And Mm. I understood. And I said, what if we do it differently. And it said, how? I said, I don't know. But what if I don't, I stop those people who want to find it and kill it. And we can maybe find a way to transform instead. And it was, it was like, it didn't know it was, this was all brand new. And I, and again, I said, I don't know either, but we can do this together. So no, Natalie, if what happened was those cells were transformed and that's why they're not there. Or my immune system came and cleared them out because this was no longer going to be a place that could sustain them. I don't know what happened, but I'm now in my, my experience of listening and recording. So I can hold on to all of this and then be able to speak more about it for people who are newly diagnosed with cancer. Yes. So my work as a result, though, was drastically reduced. I changed my life. I changed my diet to a whole food plant-based diet. All the things that I used to do that were feeding cancer unknowingly, I don't do anymore. Everything I do, I feed my immune system and my wellness. Mm. And so it's a really different time for me. And I don't have the availability I once had. Yeah, But that doesn't mean that things aren't happening. They're incubating right now. And see where they lead me. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for just sharing all of that. And it's hard to have words, just what you just shared about this journey that you've been on and befriending and getting to know your cancer. Yeah. And that is mind blowing and amazing. And I'm so grateful that you are recording all of that and that you are documenting this journey of connecting Mm -hmm. with all of this inside of you because it's going to help so many people that, yeah, uh, we, we just need to pause and listen. That's where the power is. That's what Viktor Frankl taught us. Mm -hmm. Pausing is where the power is. And that way we listen 
and we listen inside and there's so much wisdom in our systems, but there's so much fear around cancer that we as a society do what we do with the cancer um, that we've done anytime we're afraid. We seek, we seek it out to get rid of it. Yes. Yeah. And what do we learn? I don't know that we learn anything in that process. Right. And to hear, like you said, it respond with yeah. its own fear that sure. it doesn't want to be destroyed necessarily, you know, that, but that it can transform. It had been healthy cells once. It right. didn't even know what birthed it. It didn't know how it got there. All it knew was it was terrible because now it had to hide. Mm. And it, it sounded like the most horrible, horrible place to be. Talk about a bad trip is wow. to become a cell that was healthy and then become cancerous and not even be able to understand what's happened. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But right. We're in the transformation work. This is what our work is. So why not with our own systems? Yeah, absolutely. And have cancer. Oh, and the last thing I'll say about this, when I really sat with this in a subsequent medicine session, what I got was I, I don't have cancer. Self doesn't have cancer, mm. but a very, very hardworking manager part of me, the cancer came through that part mm. and it was, and so there was healing for me to do with that part, as well as the cancer that was there that I connected with. Oh my gosh. That makes, it makes so much sense. I have tears coming to my eyes as you describe that, because it makes so much sense. Yeah. These hardworking, you know, yeah. these manager parts within us that yeah, are coming maybe from burden places that have these positive intentions and strive, 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 work, 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 but that's right. Bless them. You know, that's right. They get the in inflammatory illnesses and cancer is one of them. Mm. So there's so much love to be mm. extended to our beautiful parts and understanding it in different dimensions now is I think what we, we are being invited to do. Yes. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you for letting oh. me, letting me share this with you. I oh. appreciate it immensely. This has been an honor and I'm just so grateful again. I feel like I've said grateful a million times in the midst of our conversation, but it's true. I, I'm just yeah. so grateful to have sat with you today and to have been a witness to you sharing all this amazing information and personal information about your own journeys. And I'm excited to keep connecting with you in Beautiful. the future. Me too. Just by chance, are you going to the conference in Denver? I am not. And oh. parts of me are sad about uh -huh. that because I am traveling to San Diego, California for my sister's wedding oh. in about a week and a half. And so just, you know, trying to navigate travel. I have a three-year-old son and yep. all of that. So going to the conference this year, just, it wasn't going to make sense. Yeah. But I know that I will be there at some point in the future. Beautiful. I hope our paths cross. I'm hoping to be able to share in a in that venue in the future. Not not yet, but in the future in terms of these conversations with cancer. Yeah. That's so powerful. Well, Nancy, thank you again so much for sharing all of this. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Natalie. Wonderful. I appreciate it immensely.